Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tony Dwyer is here. He's the Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity and joins us now in studio. Good morning. Happy New Year. Good morning, David. Happy New Year. Uh, you are st- there you go. <laughs> as well. Very good. You were staying in the, uh, in the chill zone. Uh, as you put it, what is keeping you uh, neutral at this point in time? It's just the enthusiasm that took place. When you have such a significant ramp on a news item, it, sometimes it just gets a little bit too extreme. And it, it, you, history shows that you tend to pause and correct slightly. And we're, we think that um, if you're a longer-term investor, you don't want to do anything. You just want to stay long. The fundamental backdrop continues to be very strong for credit, for domestic growth, for global growth. But uh, I think you'll, if you want to put new money to work, I do think you'll get a better entry point coming in the next few weeks. Going back to, to the end of last year, I was hearing two things. One, that we had this Trump rally. That was driving a lot of what we were seeing in the market. And there was another camp saying that uh, the rotation that was uh, we were seeing there was already underway, that that transition yep. was happening beforehand. Where do you fall on, on that? I upgraded the market three days before the election, not because I'm so smart, but because the global growth rate was improving. If you look at, for the listener's benefit, when we talk about global PMIs, those are purchasing managers' indices, it kind of is a gauge of me- measuring manufacturing overseas and domestic frankly. They were all getting much, much better. Our theme last year was after that January and February collapses, what could go right? If you Let me take you back to January and February. Energy was a mess. It was getting crushed. Financials looked like they were all going out of business. Mm-hmm. Those are the two, two of the best sectors for the year. So, and that's because the economic growth had already started to improve. And that ultimately the fear going into the election created an oversold opportunity, too much selling. So we upgraded the market. The post-Trump uh, rally has brought in too much uh, optimism. So we just want to take a break. We do think the, mon- the, um, the fiscal stimulus of lowering taxes, repatriation, lowering regul- the, improving the regulatory environment, I think that is a very constructive thing going forward. But mm. I just want to take a chill. Sure. So hence the chill. Take a chill. Yeah. <laughs> Sound advice for all Take of us. <laughs> John Tucker, have you ever heard such cool hit talk? On well, he's Bloomberg? sporting a goatee. He's got the no, 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 the folks. The Irish for those of you that can observe this on Bloomberg Radio, Mr. Dwyer is coming here with full beard. You're not shaving till none of your children need money, right? <laughs> is that the basis? Is that what this is? I'm going to have a hell of a beard there by the go. time <laughs> I die. You're going to look like Leland Sklar, the acclaimed oh. bass player. Do you care about PE? How quaint. Price to earnings. Do I care? You care about the direction of it, Tom. Um, We have to be very careful to listen to people like me that come on the radio or TV and say that, you know, the market is fairly valued, overvalued, undervalued. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because you can't pick the time. Valuation or PE has never been a a great timing tool. Mm. 
but it moves in trends. So if you're in an uptrend for the price-to-earnings multiple, you have to, until it changes, make the assumption that it's going higher. The price-to-earnings multiple is in an uptrend, which means that before this cycle is over, you're going to get higher valuations. And that ultimately is our call, where we're too conservative probably for our 2017 target once we get this correction. And your target is right now? It's twenty three forty, which is based on $130 in earnings, okay. which is a little bit below the street, can, and uh, an 18 multiple, which is too low. I know you're chill, <laughs> but can you also give me a target on the Dow for those fossils of us? That think of the terms. I, I don't. <laughs> you don't. It's beneath I, but, but, you, right? No, it's, it's, it's just I'm not smart enough to create an earnings estimate. Right? Okay. <laughs> okay, but 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 ultimately, what people miss is they make fun of the Dow. It's got a it's got a greater than nine point uh, nine five correlation coefficient to the S and P five hundred. In other words, it moves exactly with it mm. over time. So I think to try and break the two up is if you think you're going to go up ten percent in the S and P, assume you're going to go up ten percent in the Dow. So you're neutral now. What are you waiting for? What are the metrics that you're looking at? What what could shake you from that uh, that position? There's six almost sixty percent of investment newsletter writers are bullish. In this cycle, that is marked typically a high point, and also right bef- before a correction. So I want to see some of the bullishness fade. That obviously comes with some market weakness. You know, we're famous for getting bullish when the market's going up and bearish when the market's sure. going down. I love to say to our investors that corrections only feel natural, normal, and healthy until you actually get one, hmm. right? And then when you get it, you start to fear that there's something fundamentally different. So I just want to see some of the optimism <clears throat> in, uh, in the market come out. Use of cash. We, you, know, you and I have been talking all morning, but we never got to this other than a quick comment on Tim Cook. Does the religion continue of use of cash? I mean, Mario Gabelli says it's not financial engineering. I want my money back. Does that attitude continue? I think it is. When you have such low interest rates, one of the greatest uses of cash is to increase shareholder value, and the, and the shareholders are demanding it. I thought the Ford CEO yesterday was very interesting. He was asked if Donald Trump drove his decision, and that may have been part of it, but ultimately it's shareholders. If you're a CEO, you have to perform for the shareholders, not necessarily – you hope that by doing so, you perform for the employees and everybody else. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you're responsible to the shareholders, and the best use to cash with such low interest rates historically has been buybacks. Now, as rates go up, that's when your capital um, – your capital use goes more into spending and trying to improve, so productivity, hence the second half of the 90s, frankly. You mentioned the, uh, the the repatriation holiday here that we could see. We could see some of these corporations bringing their money back into the U.S. We heard Larry Summers yesterday on surveillance uh, <laughs> saying very forceful How, language there. So that wouldn't make stop, much stop. of it. Go ahead. How good was that That was interview? incredible. He yeah. was on fire. Yeah. Whether you agree with him or not, it was fascinating. I don't mean to interrupt. No, you, but he, he there questioning the, the potential efficacy of a, of a holiday like that. What do you think? I mean – could that do you do you anticipate that money would be used for anything else other than buybacks? Well, most of it again, so much of it is held by information technology companies and for healthcare companies, and those have been their two greatest uses of cash have been stock buybacks. So I'm not going to try and reinvent the wheel and say it's going to be different. You know, Wall Street's littered with people saying it's different this time. I think they're going to continue to do what has worked for them, which is buyback stock. Mm. A lot of people drawing this parallel, you, you wrote a note about this, a lot of people saying, uh, let's look back to 1980, let's, let's look back to when Reagan was elected, and, and we can draw parallels between then and now when you look at the markets 
Uh, you pour some cold water on that. You don't think that's an apt, an apt comparison? It's actually interesting, David, because I looked actually also at the first Eisenhower administration where you had eight years of a Democrat that was in the first year of a Republican. In the first year of the Reagan administration and the first year of the Eisenhower, you had a recession. That recession wasn't because of the president. I wish we would get over this. It's the president. It's not the president. It's monetary policy. You had an inverted yield curve before both of those two presidents took office, which created a shutdown of credit, which created a recession. That was the cause for the for the weakness in economic activity and the markets. Now, we could have a correction in the U.S. economy. That's, that's, I'm kind of calling for it. But it has nothing to do with an inversion of the yield curve, which means for the listeners, short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. It's a, it's a pretty rare event, and it has always led to – since 19, the early 1950s, has always led to a recession. right? So without that, it's just a market correction. It's not an economic event, and that is the difference between the Reagan um, – early years and where we are now. Have we seen a transition period like this before, though, when we see the enthusiasm, when we see that driving markets in the way that it has over the last couple months? It's funny. You you know, when we talk about this, we're all kind of pundits, right? And and you say, this is the meanest election that I've I've ever seen. How come I hear that every four years? It, It gets meaner and meaner and meaner. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's maybe it's just overall media. Maybe it's just that's what collects advertising dollars. But human nature is never different. The one thing I yeah. know is that human nature is not different. There were some pretty contested <clears throat> elections before. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back with Tony Dwyer. We're going to chill out. <laughs> chill zone, Stay chill. The Just chill say chill. Catch chill a cool wave here. and a mellow buzz. Yeah. You know, we're going to take a walk on the wild side. And <laughs> I don't surf and I don't buzz. We're I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Gonna be I sound like, Stan, I like Ken Pruitt would love this. Lake Ray Ken Pruitt. This would be like Stan Freeberg moment. What a guy. You know, it would be beat. Like, you know, He's going to do a little Come back with Tony Dwyer and get chill. Tony Dwyer with his canicord genuity. I want to talk about what Gartman calls things that when you drop them on your foot, they hurt. Borg Warner, just as one idea, in the from the Lehman Lows, was up 736%. It's enjoyed a 55% bear market. It's plunged from 65 down to 30, and it's had a bounce. Do you like industrial stocks? Are they on fire sale? I think that they are. But I think they're going to get a little bit worse before they get better. Similar to our chill zone correction call right now, I think you're going to just buy them better. But ultimately, the global economy continues to improve. Now, what's going to offset that global economic improvement, Tom, is that um, monetary policy is going to continue to tighten. Again, for the listeners, that means when the Fed is raising interest rates, you tend to pay a little bit less for some of the more cyclically oriented businesses. I, um, you know, we were talking with uh, Doug Cass yesterday, and, and he said he expects when you think about timing here, uh, when the market might turn, it might happen before inauguration. In other words, this enthusiasm that some investors have about the Trump presidency might uh, end or subside before the presidency actually uh, begins. What's your sense of timing here? Uh, when you talk about neutrality, how yeah. long that might last, do you have any sense of, of how long it might last? We lowered our opinion in December 19th, and history showed that when you have the kind of buying climaxes that you have with so many stocks, it, it your, your performance, your median performance a month later is negative, which means I think it's going to be sometime between mid, mid and end of January that you started – or you've already started to get a little bit of a correction, that you get, get a little bit more meaningful correction, David. Hmm. I um, noted in your, your most recent note, you said uh, that, uh, that uh, it's all about credit. We're going to be talking with, uh, with yep. George Borey here in a little bit about bonds and corporate credit as well. But uh, explain your, that facet of your thesis, if you would. 
if credit is made available yeah. to people in America, we will use it and we will buy stuff. If you don't have any credit or if your credit is tightening up, you don't have the ability to buy more stuff. That's the the great mistake that we make is it, that the Fed uh, officials make is they think when they lower interest rates and they lower interest expense that we're going to use that savings to pay off the debt. Well, of course we're not. We're going to use it to spend more money. We're going to take out more money. You know, in the Dwyer family, you know, <laughs> conglomerate. That's what we do. Let's chill out with the Dwyer family. Yeah, chill out with a lot of debt in the Dwyer family. So, you know, that as interest rates go up. That starts to lessen, and you know you're in the second half of the economic cycle. So even though we're seven years yeah. into this economic cycle, we've been early in the cycle until the Fed started to raise interest rates, yeah, thus okay. raising interest expense. What's your actual assumption, or more importantly, as you mentioned before, it's the first derivative. Have you changed or lifted or raised your actual assumption, that bogey that we think we're going to make in the equity market? I Currently, I'm look. I'm looking for kind of modest growth, maybe seven to eight percent. I do think I'm way too conservative. Now, again, even though interest rates are going up, which we just talked about, Tom, I think one of the the reasons that you can not worry too much about it yet is wages are still going up, incomes are still going up, and they are historically undercounted. So I think the the economic improvement and the earnings improvement that you're going to get out of the S and P is going to offset some of this monetary remember tightening. Two thousand one, two thousand two, that moment. I'm sure you remember it, where they came out and they said, oops, we got the profit estimates wrong. Yeah. Remember, they got, they got 98, 99, 2000 all wrong. Yep. Are we at risk of that again, where they go, oops, we got profits 100%. wrong? hundred percent. Once you, in, and again, for the listeners' benefit, all of this is terrific stuff, but what- Oh, great. There's so one you're indicator, translating what I just no, said. There's one indicator that you have to pay attention to, and it's the yield curve, because mm. that's what ma- what makes a bank lend to people or a financial institution lend to people is if they can make money on it. If the money that they're being charged exceeds the money that they can charge us, well, of course they're not going to lend, and that shuts down spending. That's the one indicator you want to watch. We're still probably at least a year – probably a year and a half to two years away from that going negative. And once it goes negative, it takes over a year to shut it down. So we're probably two to three years away from any recession. Ultimately, as you get closer to that time period, you're going to start to get more defensive and a little bit more negative. David, jump in here with one more question. Yeah, for we get these, these Fed minutes today. We've talked a lot about how the Fed and a new Fed could influence the economy going forward. How about the markets? Hold on. Is that like Lord Vader? That was. Or right? Lord Dwarf? Job, I want to make the Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> Thank you. You are Jabba the Hutt. I was a middle kid. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, so how, if we see a reconfigured Fed, how does that affect the markets in, in the new year? I think a reconfigured Fed, again, I don't think it's the configuration of the Fed. I think it's inflation, yeah. and what you're getting is economic. The, the monetary policy has been so easy because there's been okay. no fiscal stimulus. I think they're going to not have historic accommodation because some of the Tony, fiscal stimulus. we got to go. Thank you okay. so much. Thank we want to chill out with you right now and Lou Reed. Take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Piping in on the phone line, Evan Medeiros of Eurasia Group. That was great, David, yesterday at Eurasia Group, wasn't it? An incredible uh, lineup of guests, great hospitality there uh, as well, an incredible report, uh, too, which is now available. The Eurasia Group has it out.
uh, yeah. public consumption. Why don't you bring in Evan here on Korea, China, and eight other worries I, I don't remember. Yeah, there are two of them in specific focus, one on China, one on North Korea. Evan Medeiros, Managing Director for Asia at Eurasia Group. Great to speak with you here. Let's talk about this 19th Party Congress that's coming up. It's looming large here uh, in China. It is changing the way, perhaps, uh, that the president of China approaches his job here uh, in the months ahead of it. Uh, explain the gravity of that Congress and, and what will be accomplished there. Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning. So the 19th Party Congress is the next big political transition in China, and it's an opportunity for Xi Jinping to replace uh, a series of current leaders with his advocates. So it's the next big turning point. It's sort of like Xi Jinping's midterm election, but well, one of particular consequence. So he's going to be spending most of 2017 uh, in backroom negotiations, jockeying for position to make sure he is able to fill the top leadership known as the Standing Committee, as well as a, a larger body below it known as the Politburo, with his key advocates. So for Xi Jinping, there's no more important priority in 2017 than getting the politics in Beijing right, which means that when it comes to potential external challenges to China, whether or not that's from Trump or Japan or in the South China Sea, he's really going to be on edge, and the potential for Chinese overreaction is substantial. Xi Jinping cannot look weak mm. in 2017. What have we learned from the way that he has handled two uh, flashpoints, I'll call them, I won't call them crises, but we had the, the capture or the taking of this unmanned underwater vehicle in the South China Sea, and we had the phone call that the president-elect had with the president of, of Taiwan. What do you make of, of how President Xi Jinping reacted to both of those incidents? What does that tell you about uh, how he's going to approach that relationship going forward? Well, first and foremost, it tells us that issues of sovereignty and territorial integrity are of paramount importance to Xi Jinping. They directly touch on his political credibility. They directly touch on the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And so it comes, when it comes to questions like the Taiwan issue, South China Sea, or even the East China Sea yeah. with Japan, there's not going to be room for compromise. Now, Xi Jinping's actual reaction in those instances were relatively moderate. Uh, I don't think the seizing of that drone was meant to be some kind of grand strategic signal, but I think the, the Chinese were clearly putting yeah. down a marker that in the South China Sea they have rights uh, right. that they perceive <clears throat> that they need to protect. Give us a clinic when you say the Communist Party in China. What percent of Chinese adults or Chinese, however you measure it, Evan Medeiros, what percent are in the Communist Party? Uh, it's actually a relatively small percent. So the total population of China is about 1.3 billion people. But the actual membership of the Communist Party is maybe about 80 million to 100 million. Um, so it's a very, very small percentage of the actual population. What, what's more important is the fact that uh, it's not a representative democracy. People can't vote for their leaders. So those 80 million people in the Communist Party have an enormous amount of influence on the rest of the population. What keeps them in power? Simply the military? Uh, well, it's two things. It's, number one, it's performance. And the fact that the uh, ch Chinese economy has been growing extraordinarily since the reform era began in the late 1970s. So it's performance-based legitimacy. Uh, the second key pillar of keeping them in power is nationalism, the sense that the Communist Party has uh, been facilitating the rise of China over the last uh, several decades. And, you know, the Chinese have a very long sense of history. They're aware of the fact that they have, you know, been a preeminent power before, such as during the early 
sort of late 1700s, early 1800s, and they see this as this current period as reclaiming a stature that was denied to them by Western powers. There was uh, talk again of more sanctions being leveled against North Korea. And I know that the conversation in the past has centered on China's involvement in those sanctions, that, you know, the, the, the toolkit has pretty much been exhausted here. It needs China to participate more. The world community needs China to participate more. What, do you see the likelihood of that happening uh, increasing? I think it's possible if there are further North Korean provocations, nuclear tests or missile tests, there may be sort of an incremental effort on or incremental willingness on China's part to ramp up sanctions. But the real fundamental problem here is that the U.S. and some of its allies want to put in place regime-threatening sanctions, sanctions that would that would uh, threaten the regime of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. The Chinese are unwilling to accept that. So would the Chinese be willing to do a little bit more on sanctions with North Korea? Possibly. But is it ever enough that it could really make uh, have some kind of strategic effect on negotiations, unlikely. Your advantage, Evan, is you speak to tons of people about greater Asia. How do they question you about our president-elect? How do they frame their curiosity, their interest, their criticism, their support of president-elect Trump? It's a great question. Uh, a few issues come up when I speak with uh, Asian policymakers and Asian business leaders. Number one, does Trump care about Asia? Uh, they really wonder whether or not Trump is going to be as committed and involved in Asia as President Obama was, regardless of whether or not you think the pivot strategy was successful. You know, Obama's track record is substantial in his engagement in Asia. And they say Trump looks very domestically focused to the extent that foreign policy is an issue. They say, isn't he going to be focused on ISIS? So does Trump care about Asia? Number two, TPP. TPP for the rest of Asia is a godsend. It's uh, a critical trade agreement that brings America and Asian economies closer. It, uh, it's an external force for critical structural economic reforms in Asia. And Trump seems to be walking away from uh, TPP. The third is alliances. Trump, since the late 1980s, has been very critical of American alliances, whereas for most policymakers in Asia, they see American commitment to alliances as a foundational piece of regional prosperity and security. The region has flourished because America has helped provide critical security guarantees. So they're very nervous that Trump may take a step back from alliances. And the last piece is China. Look, no Asian policymaker or business leader wants China to dominate Asia, but they all, none of them uh, want, want to be drawn into a U.S.-China conflict. They're nervous about Trump's approach to China. They're nervous that he seems to be raising the Taiwan issue, which is, you know, not something that any Asian leaders think really deserves to be called into question. That it's a predicate for U.S.-China relationships, not uh, a source of leverage. So they're they're nervous and they're skeptical. How robust is the dialogue between the U.S. and China? How robust has it become here? And, and what does Donald Trump need to do to preserve that? Well, it's become very robust. I mean, under President Obama, he surpassed all of his predecessors in terms of the degree of high-level strategic engagement with the Chinese leadership, and that was replicated among many of his top cabinet secretaries, Secretary of Treasury, State, National Security Advisor. So the question for Trump really is, will he put in place a robust engagement strategy for the Chinese. And this is not engagement for the sake of engagement. This is engagement in order to serve American economic and security interests. 
So will he devote the time and energy necessary to manage the U.S.-China relationship? It's sort of like the U.S.-Soviet relationship during the Cold War. Would you ever have an American president that's going to devote the time and effort to manage this key strategic variable in international affairs? Unclear whether or not Trump has the, the time, the inclination, the temperament to do that. Very quickly, we have 30 seconds left. You know, we, we follow the economic news about the stress tests on the Chinese currency and outflows and all of that. How big an issue uh, is the economy for China here in the new year? Oh, it's of paramount importance. As I said, politics is going to be uh, Xi Jinping's top focus, but economics is a very, very close second because they're intimately related. The Chinese government faces a whole variety of economic imbalances that they haven't done a very good job in managing. Uh, and one of them, obviously, is the currency. There's enormous downward pressures on the renminbi. They're trying to manage that by closing holes in the capital account. Uh, but that's, uh, that could be a strategy of just putting fingers in the dike. Well, so I think the Chinese, the downward pressures will remain. Well, Evan, thank you so much. As we look at Eurasia Group's top risks for 2017 worldwide, this is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their roles to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Michael Faroli, he's the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. He joins us now. Michael, Happy New Year. Same day, David. Were you among those surprised by the uh, the dot plot, surprised by the, the forecast here for three rate hikes in the new year? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, though in hindsight, I, I guess one could recon- you know, reconcile that move, again, with the move you saw in the unemployment rate in November. So in hindsight, maybe it does make sense, but we thought they were going to be a little more cautious, just given that the the dollar had moved up uh, quite significantly going into the December meeting. We thought that might uh, temper any sort of inflationary concerns they may have, given the tightening in the labor market. I think when we last spoke, it was it was fairly soon after the election, and there was a lot of talk about what might happen when Donald Trump becomes president, and and uh, a lot of prospect of uh, commentary. What what you know what what type of infrastructure spending we might see, what kind of tax reform we we might see. Do you have more clarity now? Are you more satisfied with where things are, are headed in light of the fact that we have some uh, key personnel uh, named to positions, not confirmed, but named to positions? Do you, do, you, do you enjoy more clarity than you did back then? Not really, unfortunately. Uh, I think a lot of it's going to come down to the interplay between the president and the Congress uh, and both, uh, both chambers of Congress. And there, uh, the difference between forecasting and guessing right now yeah. is, uh, <laughs> is pretty minor. So... Um, uh, you know, there's still a lot that's pretty unclear in our minds. Your latest weekly, and folks, again, we protect the copyright of everyone, Michael Faroli and uh, Daniel Silver, Jesse Edgerton, and others at J.P. Morgan Chase, putting out a must-read every Friday afternoon. And, Michael, very simply, the charts are fascinating, and they migrate me to where you're not changing your terminal rate. You made worldwide headlines two years ago by predicting a migration to a new lower terminal level 
for our economic might, our GDP. Do you amend that higher with a Trump victory, or do you stay with a more tempered view of where yields and growth are going? Yeah, no, we haven't really changed our view on uh, long-run potential GDP growth or long-run neutral interest rates. Um, There's going to be little that uh, this or any president can do to to really change the demographic trends, which is one part, one of the two pieces of the long-run growth puzzle. So that's almost set in stone. And then on the productivity front, uh, there is some potential that some of the reforms to the corporate tax code, for for example, could stimulate greater mm-hmm. capital spending. Uh, but we see that as um, uh, really pretty pretty modest in terms of, of the impact. Yeah. And, you know, as we look, even as we look at the fourth quarter, uh, it looks like we're going to have another disappointing productivity quarter. And we, we um, I'd like to say I'm, I'm uh, revising things higher, but uh, yeah. I just don't think that's most, uh, most likely. You lead your weekly report with consumption. And it's just remarkable where real consumption is just vaporized back to lower levels. Do you stay with that? Is the American consumer flat on their back? Um, well, so I, what I would, I guess I would characterize it a little bit differently, which is that we had a kind of a surprising uh, surge in consumption in the second and, and third quarters. Uh, and it looks like some of that may have been a delayed response to the decline in uh, and energy prices that was experienced in, in prior quarters. So the saving rate went up as energy prices went down, and then as consumers started to, I think, uh, mm-hmm. basically bake into their their, their uh, budgets, these lower uh, energy prices, you saw saving rates go back down. Uh, but, so, uh, you know, I think we're settling back into more um, more trend right. growth in consumer spending now. David, I have, David Gura, I've just gone and I've done something I should not do. For the first time this year, I've looked at the dots chart. Michael Froley, what does it signal to you that instantly the market vigilantes and the Fed are on the same page, essentially out, oh, I'm going to call it uh, 18 months? Um, well, you know, there have been times uh, in the, the brief history of the dots where the market's been above or below uh, yeah. Uh, where the Fed is, and um, you know now they happen to be aligned. We'll see how long that okay. lasts. Uh, you know, it shouldn't they shouldn't always be perfectly aligned? And, right. And, uh, I think this is this okay. David. I know we want to get to Michael Ferroli on jobs, but I really have to carry this forward. I was mentioning the wonderful Quartz article: a chemical imbalance mm. in the brain could be causing people to exercise less. Yes. Great tweet in from Amelda in Manila. Agree. You have too much martinis, thus the imbalance. <laughs> Like to thank well, like Amelda for <laughs> they, they, that observation this morning. Thank you. Shoe count up to Akshat Rathi of Quartz for a chemical imbalance in the brain could be causing people to exercise less. We got a chemical imbalance. We love Jobs Day, don't we? David? Absolutely. Michael Feroli with us, Chief U.S. Economist uh, at J.P. Morgan. Let's look ahead to Jobs Day. Uh, here, Michael, and, and I wonder how close we are in your estimation to, to full employment. Does the term retain the significance that it did when we see unemployment here at four point what four point six percent? I think we are at, if not beyond, full employment. Uh, and you know, I think when when we talk about Nehru, we have to remember what the the A is in, in Nehru, which is accelerating, and wages may be low, but they are accelerating. And so, I think there's a case to be made that we're uh, we may be below Nehru in terms of the unemployment rate because we have seen, uh, in many measures, uh, you know, some some 
uh, decent acceleration in the last uh, six months. I, you know, I asked you what you're going to be looking for in the, the minutes today. How about when those reports come out on, on Friday? Are you going to be looking at principally participation at wage growth? What's of most interest to you uh, right now? Uh, um, I would probably say the unemployment rate. Uh, the overall? Yeah, the yeah. unemployment rate, because that fell so much in, in, uh, in November from 4.9% to 4.6%, uh, so much so that we end consensus are looking for a little bit of a retracement to 4.7%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that will be um, whether or not that actually occurs and the, the degree to which I think is going to be pretty yeah. interesting for thinking about the Fed. Michael, you are esteemed for your market and the linkage to academic economics through your Bruce School of Chicago. My first paper to read this year, which I should have read last year, folks, is Lawrence Katz and Alan Kruger, The Rise and Nature of Alternative Work Arrangements in the United States. Many have quoted this paper, including great work by Zero Hedge. Michael Ferroli, help me with Alan Kruger's gig economy. Is it really just a smokescreen for part-time America? Uh, so I think it depends on you know, which measure uh, in, the, um, in the jobs number we're looking at. Uh, but I think ultimately... You know, when it comes to kind of linking this back to things that your listeners may be interested in, I think it really matters for uh, for wages. And so that's why I think a number, another number we're going to keep an eye on on Friday is that average hourly earnings number. We're right. disappointed quite a bit. But in, where are benefits? Whatever. I mean, come on. They, they, the, the distinction here, Michael Ferroli, the distinction between full-time and part-time comes down to the plug-in of benefit cost, right? Uh, partly, yes. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I, I think we... Uh, do not just want to focus solely on one measure of wages. Uh, that's why I think the ECI and the ECEC are also uh, things we got to keep an eye on. Um, but, you know, I think when we look at part-time uh, employment, uh, there are a number of issues here, um, one of which is the ACA and the degree to which that may be incentivizing employers to limit the hours uh, of employees for reasons of benefits, as you mentioned, So, and how that changes, actually, as we... Uh, as we look at the new year with possible changes to the ACA, I think that's another one of the wild cards we talked about earlier in the in the program about uh, thinking about the agenda okay. this year. But, but this is critical, folks. Alan Kruger and Larry Katz go back to Ronald Coase, the esteemed Nobel laureate, in 1937, talking about the dynamics of our labor economy, Michael Ferroli. The answer is all that economics, which you and I learned in school, has been overwhelmed by technology. Is technology driving us to a permanent part-time America? Well, you know, so the interesting thing here is that if you look at the overall share of part-time, uh, or part-time employment as a share of overall employment, it hasn't really changed. I agree. Yes, I decade. agree. And what's, what's changed here is the share that is part-time for economic reasons versus for non-economic reasons. And even that is actually not that large. So I think when we look at the overall share of part-time, uh, it's you know we haven't really seen a sea change. Um, there's obviously hey. some very tangible examples with uh, uh, yeah. ride-hail services, but uh, I think when you look at the hard data, uh, we don't. Right. Really see. This is critical, folks. This is going to be a theme, David, for us for 2017. And and Dr. Ferroli is correct. Mm. The math shows it's actually pretty good data. I don't hear that from our listeners. That's my point. David? Well, let's talk a bit more about the data and the robustness of it. We've had Alan Kruger from Princeton on here before. Of course, he's done a lot of research on the, the gig economy and, uh, and on part-timeism. 
how, how good is the data as you see it? Uh, and sort of what, what do we need to get a better read on, on, on the part-time aspect of the economy? Well, uh, you know, I think the data is as good as it's ever been. Uh, and I think, you know, most of the data we look at is going to come from that. As you know, on Friday when we get the jobs report, yeah. it's really two different reports. One is a survey of businesses and one's a survey of individuals and households. And that household survey uh, does pretty thoroughly uh, interrogate uh, respondents about uh, part-time and self-employed status. Uh, and these are, you know, figures that have been, at least for the self-employed, consistently asked in a pretty rigorous manner going back over decades. So I think these numbers are never going to be perfect, but I think as far as uh, as far as they go, and by international comparisons and by comparisons with more ad hoc private surveys, uh, I think these are actually pretty decent data. We, we've had a, uh, a, a U.S. trade representative designate. We have someone named to that position now. Uh, I think the last time we spoke, we were talking about the potential uh, X factor of, of trade policy under President-elect Donald mm-hmm. uh, Trump. Uh, is, is that still your biggest, uh, the biggest concern for you here when you look at the, the potential for Donald Trump's economic policy going forward? Is it still trade? In terms of downside risk, yes. Um, and, you know, just because the wild card is, uh, is so unknowable, um, uh, we, we can't really look to recent history for examples of, uh, you know, large-scale increases in tariffs, uh, retaliatory sort of trade wars. And so it's... Uh, it is really something that that's that's uh, it remains by far the biggest I think downside risk at least when we think about the the year or two ahead. Michael Farley, thank you so much, and again congratulations on your work on the terminal rate of our economic growth rate uh, over the last few years, Mr. Farley, uh, with J.P. Morgan Jobs Day on Friday, David Gura. You'll be in the it, hub it of the is, universe, right? You're not, you're going to be. <clears throat> it's upon us. Yes. I mean, it, it's always sudden the first Friday of January. Yeah. having a blast here with David Blanchfield of Dartmouth College while we were on break, uh, really just talking it up, the raging debate that I'm sure all of you are having about full-time and part-time employment. Professor Blanchfield is truly one of our leading labor economists linked into monetary um, theory. What to do? Professor Blanchflower, if I'm a crass capitalist and I say I'm going to run everybody at part-time because I don't want to pay benefits, can government create incentives to shift that rational behavior? Well, of course they can. Um, obviously, there are issues on the supply side. Um, if there is, if you like, a cut point which says if, the, if somebody works 15 hours, then you don't have to pay health insurance. And if they went to 16, you do. These kind of turn points are not good. That's the kind of regulatory changes that can, can actually help. Uh, on the one hand, employers don't want to offer more hours, but because of a lack of demand, hear what I said, a lack of demand, the U.S. economy well away from full employment, there's not enough alternative Come jobs. Come on, the unemployment pe- rate, what's the unemployment rate, David? 4.6? 9.3? I mean, I'm a U6 guy. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm lost. I mean, we just had three numbers. John Tucker, do you want to weigh in well, with I a think- number for the unemployment rate? Uh, I have a job, and that's really good. I'm going to go with as the labor economist. It would would be perfectly reasonable in the last 100 years to look at the employment rate. So I'm going to look at the employment rate. 
which is now about three percentage points below where it was in 2008 at the start. If you just do the calculation, take 63 against 60, you do 63 over 60 times the employment number, you get a number like 9 million jobs. We're 9 million jobs down below where we would be if we got the employment rate back to where it was. That looks awfully to me about to be cyclical. I mean, the story in a way is the Fed and everybody says we're at full employment. Why were all these people hurting? Why did they, why is everybody hurting in the in the heartland? Why are we seeing all these people objecting? I think completely misunderstanding the labour market. The U.S. economy is a long way from full employment. My guess is about nine million jobs away. We were at Eurasia Group yesterday talking about top risks for for the year ahead, and one of them was. Uh, about Silicon Valley, the relationship between Washington and Silicon Valley. We saw the footage of, of uh, various CEOs sitting around the table with uh, Donald Trump a few weeks back. And yes, the focus there was on security and privacy and all of that, but it was also on jobs. Uh, what more can tech companies, can Silicon Valley do uh, to improve the situation of those who are out of the workforce now. Well, I do they bear yeah. responsibility for training, or is that something that, that well, has to be done at the state or the, the federal level? F- firms complain often that they can't get adequate uh, tr- um, skilled trained manpower. Well, obviously, some of the story is that they cut that in 2008. So they're paying the price of, of closing their training programs. Now, obviously, I talk about a lot of, uh, about the level of demand, but you're completely right that government can give incentives to firms to hire people and lower the relative price of labor. So obviously, there are capital incentives um, you know, if you, you you can you can put in technology, but if the if the government was to make the relative price of labor lower, then the effect of technology would be less. I was uh, on a reporting trip a while back in Hickory, North Carolina, former furniture making capital of the country. Google has come in, built a data center, and is working in concert with community colleges to train students right. who can then go work at the facility they've built there. Uh, you're at Dartmouth College. I'm sure many of your graduates are going to work uh, at Google. But what's the role of, of community colleges, a level beneath that in training now? Are they being harnessed in the way they should be to train people? Is, is this the it's model great, here? Great, is the corporate great, It's a great model? question. I mean, I think if you were to compare, let's say, a country that's very good at training young people, Germany, essentially what Germany has is an apprenticeship program. I mean, a huge one across all kinds of sectors. And they make use of this this community college equivalent. Um, it looks to me that these places are underused compared to elsewhere. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's about trying to create the transition from school to work. Right. And if you don't make that transition early, you may never make it. So the idea of, I mean, I, we were just talking about, um, Andrew Cuomo talked about trying to get people coming into New York community colleges if their parents earn less than 125000 That's the rule to get financial aid to come to Dartmouth. So obviously, I think there's a huge place for these colleges. Um, and and in, in a way, what you have to do is get a partnership with firms so that people can go in and out of these places. But at the end, there's a promise of a good job. That's what the Germans do long apprenticeship programs people don't take much money but there's a promise at the end of a good job and that promise is th- is something that people will kind of partake of i uh you're writing a new book yeah <laughs> focus here on the labor market i i read your your draft of the introduction here uh, before the show it brings to mind what you were talking about in the last segment that is you have a lot of people uh, in places off the East Coast, the West Coast here in the U.S. We're dissatisfied with the way things are headed, haven't dissatisfied, haven't felt they've been left out economically uh, here. As you've been thinking about this, as you've looked back on the last 10 years since the financial crisis, what's the remedy there? We talk about uh, broken promises or the prospect for reform uh, in, in the U.K. Uh, you have a lot of people here in the U.S. who voted for Donald Trump, perhaps, who are 
pinning their hopes on the promises that, that he made here. How tenuous is that, do you think? Well, I think I, I, I have a I, – I call these folks the left behinds. Mm. Um, I, I, think, I think there's two parts to it. In a deep crisis, everybody's in it together. So people understand we're all we're all trying to fight our way through thinking it's a war mode. And then as you come out, some people start to do well and the others are left behind. Relative things matter. And the problem is that how are we going to fix the heartland? I mean, the big part of my story is, yes, the labor market is a major issue. But now we have this huge issue in the heartland of America where we have the death rates of white non-Hispanics between the ages of 35 and 54 that are mm. rising. They're falling in every other country in the <clears> world. <throat> we have a huge social crisis that's going on. They've been left behind. Right. Um, uh, uh, the, the question is, how are you going to fix it? You're not going to fix it quick. David, 10 seconds left. Have you been called by the Trump transition team? My phone's on. Oh, sorry. Your phone's on. <laughs> Danny, thank you. So where are you, where are you writing in England now? The Independent, The Guardian? I can't keep track. The Guardian. The Guardian more. Very yes, good. Manchester. David, Manchester. Uh, it was called the Manchester what? Guardian. The Guardian. It's the great free newspapers. Well. For now. For now. <laughs> From Cardiff. Danny Blanchflower. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.